you have not heard this sermon yet, we'd really better pray. So let's pray. <laughs> Father God, uh, here we are gathered together with others uh, doing a, an odd thing. We've been singing. It's not very often in our culture where people just get together and, and they sing. And then we're praying. We're speaking into the air. But we believe that you hear us. That's not an empty or a vacuous thing we do. Uh, and then we open the Bible and we study it and we want to hear from you. And that's what we're doing now, God. Would you teach us? Would you speak to us? Would the words that Jesus spoke uh, convict and encourage us? We need this this morning and prepare our hearts to come to the table that reminds us who Jesus is and what Jesus did. All of this we ask in his name. Amen. You know, I remember many, 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 many years ago worrying as a child. Um, I'd worry about school. I'd worry about taking tests, you know, and some of those times I was worrying I hadn't studied very much. I worried about turning in assignments, especially things like papers, you know, would I get an okay grade? Um, I worried about report cards, having to show them to my parents where my grade's going to be acceptable. I worried about getting in trouble in school. I remember thinking, man, how great it's going to be when I'm finally an adult and I won't have to worry anymore. Um, but then I got a little older and surprise, surprise, I continued worrying. I, I worried about going to college or getting in college. I worried about making friends, which I did get in. I, I worried, what will I do to, to make a living? I worried, would I live up to my potential? You know, people are always talking about you living up to your potential. What's my potential? I wasn't sure. I worried about meeting a girl who would marry me. And then when one did, I worried how we were going to pay the bills, you know. There are bills coming in, and we have to pay these things. And then I worried if we'd ever have a child, and then we did. And when that first child was born, I realized I had everything I wanted, and now I was a parent, and I, really there would be no more worrying. <laughs> and then I realized this little baby was eight pounds of nonstop worry. Uh, I thought, now I'm going to have to worry about the, this little kid, you know, for the next 18 years. But I was wrong again because after 18 years, the, the kid moved away, but the worry stayed. And uh, just to be clear, I want to be crystal clear. Worry is not my friend, nor is it yours. It always tries to get us to live in a future that we cannot control and miss the present where we should be grateful, grateful for the blessings and the things that we have, the life that we're living, grateful for the now. Worry, I've discovered, is, uh, is insatiable. It's absolutely insatiable. You can never worry enough. Uh, I can worry about not having kids on the one hand, and I can worry about having them turn out badly, and I'm capable of actually worrying about those two things uh, at the same time, which if you think about it, they're utterly incompatible. Um, I have a a finite capacity to live my life, very finite, but I apparently have an infinite capacity to worry. Worry relentlessly kills my joy. You can't really be overjoyed and be worrying at the same time. Worry uh, causes me to think things like, you know, there's not going to be enough, not enough money, not enough time, not enough friends. Not enough space in this house we can afford. Worry will have you thinking you're not going to make it. Uh, people aren't going to like it. The bubble is going to burst. Uh, I'm disappointing people everywhere I turn. Worry will get me to say things like, but what if? You know, rather than, 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's, it's what if I fail? You know, worry will say, if only. If only I had more of this or more of that or better this or better that rather than give thanks in all circumstances. Worry is sneaky. I can worry about sermons I'm writing uh, where Jesus is telling us, don't worry, you know, and uh, the truth to be told, I think Jesus hates worry. I think he hates what it does to us, to people. I mean, was he was, when he was here on earth, he saw people worrying all the time. And uh, when we worry, it makes us small. When we worry, it turns us inside looking at ourselves, our situations, the things that frighten us, the things that intimidate us. It makes us timid. It can even make us mean. It can make us very self-centered. Worry chokes out joy. It kills dreams. It steals our days one hour at a time. Every hour spent worrying robs you of something. And I think for all these reasons and more, Jesus hates worry. Now, the good news is he loves worriers. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We all need to hear this. Jesus has great compassion for people who worry. You know, it may be that you're here this morning and things like anxiety or chronic worry or panic attacks are a crushing enemy for you. These things kill your joy. Maybe other people, even churches sometimes make you feel worse because they tell you that anxiety is your fault. You just need to have more faith. If you have more faith, you wouldn't have anxiety. Well, for folks who battle things like anxiety, they know this is not a simple case of just lacking faith. If you fight the inner battles of anxious thoughts, it's very real. It can be very dark. Nobody, nobody can ever really fully understand what you're processing, what you're dealing with, unless they've been there, unless they've walked in the same shoes. But I want to tell you, God does understand he understands everything around the subject of worry. Uh, he knows. He cares. Uh, Jesus does not say the words that I'm about to read to add to our burden with regards to anxiety and worry. He actually, in fact, says what he says to lighten our burden. And so we come today in the Sermon on the Mount to the words that lie honestly at the very heart of Jesus' message here in the Sermon on the Mount, this thing we've been studying now for months. These are words that Jesus didn't just speak. Believe me, he lived them. He lived them. Even in the midst of the painful, sometimes overwhelming details of his life, he lived and he embodied these words. So let me read them to you. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of his own, of its own. Um, those are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a brilliant, brilliant Christian thinker that nobody's ever heard of. His name is Rosenstock Hussey. He actually died back in 73, 1973. And he talks about the need that we all have to live our lives uh, in Jesus' kingdom, in the reality of Jesus' kingdom. And he goes about describing what that looks like. He says, if we do that, if we live our lives in Jesus' kingdom, we live a life that's actually beyond worry um, because we live it one day at a time in the shadow of, in the light of the truth of the cross. He says we live at the intersection. You can almost picture this like a cross. We, we live at the intersection of the past and the future, which the intersection, of course, is now. All of us have a past. We remember what's behind. And we, when we think about the past, either do so with gratitude or with regret. And all of us have a future as well, he notes. And, and he says, when we think about the future, we either do that with fear or we do that with hope. And he says, the only place where we can find God, really, it's not in the past, it's not in the future, it's in the now, it's in this moment right here today. That's where we find God active. Regret will try to get us to live in the past and dwell in the past. Fear and anxiety will try to make you live in the future. Uh, but God calls us to live in this moment. He says, right now is his gift to us. We are creatures made really to live in the now. Now, we're also creatures, he notes, who occupy space. You're occupying space right now. You're taking up a chair. And um, again, when it comes to space, it's kind of interesting. We actually live in two worlds, he says. He says, there's an inner world. And then there's an outer world, that great world that God has created. And in our minds, he says, there is this unceasing flow of thoughts and feelings going on there. And it's, it's a private world, our inner uh, thoughts, but, and it's a great gift to us, given to us by God, an amazing gift. But then too, we are creatures who engage, uh, we think here, but we engage out there. We engage the outer world. We interact with objects in nature, trees, mountains, animals, especially people. I hope this afternoon I get to get on a mountain bike and interact with trees and mountains and animals, hopefully not physically, but you know. <laughs> and then of course, people. We interact with people. All of this, every bit of it is a gift to us every day, a gift from God. And we were made by God to dwell in the inner world. We're supposed to have peace. And he says that when we, when we live in the center of this 
cross-type life, cross-shaped life, we actually have peace. And he says this is what the Apostle Paul talks about when Paul says, and the peace of God. Imagine that. There is a peace of God because God's not worried about the future. God's not worried about the past. He knows exactly what's gone on always is going to go on in the future for us, etc. So God knows it all. So he says, let the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, let that guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But then, too, you know, we're made to engage the world, and God calls us, being disciples of Jesus, to engage the world out there with love. That's how we engage the world, with love, the same way Jesus engages us. And so here we are. We kind of live at the intersection of the, of the past and the future. We're here in the middle, right? And of this inner world and this outer world, we're here in the middle. And Rosenstock Husey would draw a cross when he would talk about those things, and he would say, we need to live our lives at the center of the cross. And he called this a cruciform life. And he said, in reality, we all need to live a cruciform life, the life of a cross, where the past and the future intersect, and where the, the outer and the inner worlds intersect. And you can only live, he said, really, you want to live in a healthy way, you can only live at this intersection. It's called now. And as we live here in the now, we experience one now after another, don't we? The nows just keep on coming. That's life. That's the kind of creature we are. We are time-conditioned creatures, time-bound creatures. And he points out that we take these nows for granted. I mean, after all, we don't manufacture any of the nows. We don't create time, not at all. We don't control time, not at all. Every moment of time is actually a gift to us from the God who does make time, control time. Uh, it's something precious that God gives us moment by moment, now by now. Now, our nows, our moments of time are a part of eternity. It stretches all the way back, never-ending, and all the way forward. It's hard for us, impossible for us to comprehend this. Here's something else that's impossible to comprehend. Think of this. With God, time is always now. Think of that. With God, time is always now. He's always known the past fully, completely, every jot, every detail of it. He's always, he knows the present, every detail of it. Uh, there's nothing he doesn't know, and he knows the future, every detail of it. So with God, time is now. Somebody asked St. Augustine one time, if in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, what was God doing before the beginning? And Augustine said, he's making hell for people who ask questions like that. <laughs> but Augustine was only joking. And I mean that, he really was. He was only joking because God loves people to ask questions. And when you're thinking about time and you're thinking about God and you're thinking about nows, our nows, and all the questions that arise around that, God is not put off by our asking questions. God made us creatures who want to think. We have this, this inner world, right? And so we, we do ask questions. Uh, Rosenstock Husey says this. He says, we are made to remember the past with gratitude. That's what we're really made for. And we are made to anticipate the future with hope. That's what we're really made for. We are made to dwell in our hearts, our minds, with peace, the peace that God gives. And we are made to engage our world with love. That's the cruciform life, the life of the cross, he says. And that's why the most important word in the passage that we just read a moment ago is the very first word. What's the very first word? Therefore. 
What's the therefore, therefore exactly? I mean, therefore, don't worry. Well, not because worry is unpleasant, although worry is very unpleasant. Don't worry, not because it will hurt your body, although it will, research shows it will hurt your body. Don't worry because we live in a God-made, God-breathed, God-soaked, God-watched, God-loved world. You see, don't worry because your cross-shaped life is safe in the hands of God. That's what the therefore is there for. That's what's behind uh, Jesus' comments that we read. Uh, Jesus, you notice, said, look at the birds. He says, they don't think about the future. Uh, That's what he means when he says they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store away in barns. The birds aren't sitting around going, man, what about, what about tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that? that it, no, 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 they're not, they're not creatures who think that way. They are provided for. Jesus wants us to understand, however, that God, God is continually, con- constantly at work, delighting over and taking care of his world, all the things that he's created, even you and me. Jesus is saying, God loves birds and God loves flowers and he cares for them every single day. And every time a hummingbird swoops in for nectar or every time a daisy pops up out of the ground or every time it rains to replenish the earth, every time the sun shines, actually, if we had really eyes to see, we would see that God is working, God is caring, God is providing, God is loving. This is what God does. And Jesus hasn't actually even gotten to commenting about you or me yet. Jesus goes on to say, now, in the Gospel of Luke, this same talk Jesus has given there, and it's recorded, but these these thoughts are added in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Apparently, they weren't very expensive birds. They were easy to catch or something. And yet, not one of them, he says, is forgotten by God. Don't make the mistake of thinking even one of those sparrows that we think are of little value. Don't think, ever think that they're forgotten by God. And he says, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So that should get a big wow, right? All creatures matter to God. That's one truth. But here's another truth. Not all creatures are created equally. That's another truth. Apparently, human beings are special And of course you are, you're made in the image of God. I'm made in the image of God. You are special. You matter to God more than sparrows, more than many sparrows, apparently, right? In fact, you can take a look at the person sitting next to you right now. How many sparrows would you give for them? (laughs) God would give many. Jesus says, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows to God. Now, uh, you might be tempted to think, you know, that's, that's, I don't see it. Uh, Jesus might say it, but I, I don't see it. I don't feel, I don't, I don't see much evidence of God taking care of me. I don't have the life or the job or the home or the money that I want. I rarely have a good day. Well, let me ask you a question. What does it take for you to have a good day? How would you answer that? Because of course, you know, today, this day, according to the Bible, is the day that the Lord has made and we are supposed to rejoice and what? Be glad in it. 
You see, this day right now, this day is in between the past and the future. Let's do a little thought experiment if we can. It's a little bit dark, but you'll forgive me. Um, let's say, God forbid, let's say you find out you have cancer. That's always terrible news. And not only do you have cancer, it's, it's a terminal cancer. The doc, if the doctors can't kill it with chemo, with radiation, with surgery, it's going to kill you. Well, you've undergone the, the treatments, and it was very hard. It was very difficult, but you're through those treatments now, and it's one month later, and it's time to go back for that all-important first checkup. And the lab results that they have for you show that the cancer has come back, and it's as bad, if not worse, than ever. That, I would think, might be your worst day ever. Right there, that day. Worst day ever. Because that day you know, you grapple with the fact that you are going to die. But now imagine, because we're just imagining here, the hospital calls you the next morning and says, my gosh, we're so incredibly sorry. We have made a terrible mistake. The lab technician had mistakenly switched your lab results with another patient, another patient that hasn't even started their treatment yet. You are, in fact, cancer-free. And that's like, whoa, wow, yes. What a reversal. And now that day, the day you get this news, the day you find out that you're not going to die, at least not yet, well, you can continue raising your children now. You can continue loving your spouse now. That has to be the best day ever. So let's ask this question. What happened to make the difference between the two? Because in a way, outwardly, nothing happened. I mean, you didn't win the lottery or some large sum of money. You didn't inherit something. Uh, you didn't get promoted. You didn't become famous. Uh, you didn't get a, I don't know, some luxurious home or property. You, you didn't suddenly start feeling any different than you felt the day before. Nothing really outwardly has changed. You just got another day to do the same old things you do every other day. That's all. You can eat the same breakfast that you normally eat. You can kiss the same wife or husband goodbye. You can drive the same old car to the same old job. You can come home to the same old house and have the same old dinner sitting at the same old table. Only now you know there's no ordinary thing about ordinary. Now you know there's nothing usual about the usual. You see, here on earth, because of the effects of sin, this is what the Bible calls it. Because of the spiritual brokenness in us, we don't really see things the way we should see them. Hardly anybody ever realizes just how wonderful God is in the ordinary stuff of life. How involved God is in the ordinary details of our life. And so often we go through life thinking, you know, God doesn't really care about me. I mean, I'm stuck here in the same old job, driving the same old car, kissing the same old spouse. <laughs> Let me tell you something, friends. Let me tell you. Somewhere out there in this world, there is somebody who would love to be working at your old job. And there is someone who would love to be driving your old car. And believe it or not, there is someone who would love to be kissing your old spouse. <laughs> And maybe you're not married. Maybe, maybe you don't even have a job. Maybe you don't even have a car. 
it's still true what I'm saying. There are people, if they could be in your place right now, this would be the greatest. This would be the best day of their lives. But we don't see this. The birds do every day. God's taking care of them. The flowers do, but not us. You see, there is this wonderful God, Jesus says, who is watching over us, looking into the details of our life, even when we're totally unaware of it. This God cares. This God provides, cares about people, provides for people who don't even believe in him. It's happening every day, all day long, always happening in the now. Jesus says this God is watching over his world and with this God rightly fixed in our minds, Jesus says, my advice to you would be don't worry. Because in light of your eternal future in the kingdom of God, my kingdom, you have nothing really to worry about. You don't need to be nervous because after all, you are an important part of God's universe, a part that he really, really, really loves. You know, there are Bible um, passages in the Bible that, um, in fact, a staggering number of them that, that tell us that promise us that God is taking care, that God is there, that God is aware. Uh, In John 16, we read these words, in the world you will have tribulation. There you go. This is Jesus speaking. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's interesting. Again in John, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus says. Uh, the psalmist writes these words, God is our refuge and our strength. If you find yourself in a place where you need a refuge, if you find yourself in a place where you need strength, well, God is that refuge and he is that strength. Again, uh, the apostle Paul says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And what's so interesting about that is Paul is writing this while he's in prison, sitting in a prison. And Paul's the guy who was shipwrecked He's the guy who was beaten a couple times or many times. He's a guy who was uh, stoned a couple times. I don't mean this. I mean, you know, people throwing rocks at him. (laughs) And it's remarkable that he would say that. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches. The psalmist again says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I don't need to fear anybody because God is with me. Uh, Be not afraid. Neither be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you, says Joshua. Uh, Again, the psalmist, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That means securely where God is, that's where I'm going to dwell. He's going to watch out for me. I'm in his house. The apostle Paul, in another letter to another church, church at Rome, wrote these words. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. In other words, ultimately, eternally, everything is going to be okay. That's what... These passages are telling us. That's what Jesus is telling us. Do you understand? Your need for a good future was placed in you 
to lead you to God. We all long for, look for, want a good future. And we don't all the time get it. But that very tension and that need in us for a good future is actually meant to guide us and lead us to discovering who the God is who has the future in his hands. This is what Jesus says. This is his claim. Things are not just better than you think. Things are infinitely better than you think. Things will not just turn out okay somewhere down the road. They will turn out indescribably, inconceivably well. The pain, the suffering, the injustice, even things like death that we experience, these things will not just be redeemed. They will be gloriously creatively redeemed, redeemed without exception. That's what Jesus promises. Now, if you're ready to give life beyond worry a try, Jesus has some advice for us. It's really insightful advice. It's, it's not just, hey, stop worrying, don't worry. That's not the advice. Uh, that by itself actually kind of crushes us because have you ever tried to just stop worrying? It doesn't really work that way, just to try to stop worrying. Uh, people may choose to disobey God and be deliberate about that choice. You know, you can choose to be deliberately greedy. You can choose to be deliberately self-centered. You can choose to, to lust or choose to live life pridefully. You can be deceitful. You can tell lies. But nobody, nobody says, hey, God, I'm going to defy you so that I can fill my days with chronic anxiety, pain, and despair. It doesn't work that way. So if you wrestle with worry and anxiety and things like that, don't add guilt to it as well. No, what, what Jesus does is he actually gives us an invitation or perhaps more properly uh, understood a command. It's actually a, a command. He says this, he says, instead of worrying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Make it your top priority to get in on what God is doing and to have his kind of goodness shape your character, color your days, direct your energies, study God, think about God, read about him in God's word, get to know him better than you know anything or anyone else. Love God, be preoccupied with God, follow God, be surrendered to God, serve God, find God in the now, in this moment, and in the nows that are going to come. Uh, see his love for you and the people around you. Don't get stuck in just your world, your needs, your pain, your suffering, your grief. Rearrange your strategy for living around the remarkable opportunity you have to follow Jesus now, today, you see. To live in Jesus' kingdom now, today. And this is a one day at a time deal. We do it over and over and over. We've got to always keep doing it. Jesus taught us to pray, you remember, give us this, what? Day, our daily bread, right? 
We do it over and over and over. Living at the center of the cross, this cruciform life that Rosenstock, who's he talks about, is about living not, not yesterday, not tomorrow, but right now. You see, it's when we look at the future that we get overwhelmed thinking about how we're going to manage it, how we're going to get through it. Don't live in the future. Live in the now. Let me ask you this. How will you face all the heartbreak life is going to bring your way? How are you going to do that? How will you deal with all the problems that are going to arise in your life? They're coming. How will you handle all of the disappointment and the loss and the grief that are coming down the road? Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you, you're going to have to deal with it because it is coming. But you're going to have to deal with it one day at a time. That's the way you're going to have to deal with it. If you try to deal with it any other way, it will crush you. You see, we think the answer to anxiety in our life is we have to have less bad stuff happen to us, right? I mean, I just need less bad stuff happening. And sometimes people will mistakenly think that if I become a Christian, if I put my faith in Jesus, if I become a follower of him, well, then God will see to it that less bad stuff comes my way. And there are Christians out there that kind of actually teach that view of, of life. You know, I'll be protected from the really bad stuff. And we think if I believe hard enough, that's God's job, right? To protect me from the really bad stuff. Friends, Jesus does not say that. I mean, I don't want to be a prophet of doom, but that's just not what Jesus taught. What is more, that's not what his life demonstrates. Uh, if I recall uh, Jesus' life, as good as it was, loving people, sacrificing himself for, for people, led to a sacrifice on the cross. Was he not trusting the Father? Was he not walking with the Father? Was he not doing the Father's will? You see, friends, Jesus doesn't say that. He does not say, don't worry about tomorrow because if you have enough faith, everything's going to be good. He doesn't say that. What he says is this. He says, therefore, there's another therefore. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. It's coming. That's his point. There's nothing you can do about it. It's coming. He says, each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, these are sobering words. Wow. So here Jesus, you understand, is forecasting. You know what his forecast is? Trouble is coming. That's the forecast. When? Today. Trouble is coming. When? Today. What about tomorrow? Trouble is coming then too. You see, that's the forecast. In fact, you can turn to the person next to you right now and say, you want to know the forecast? Trouble today, trouble tomorrow. I mean, that, that's what's happening. That is what happens in a fallen, broken world. Now, what about terrible things that have happened to us in the past? Well, we certainly don't minimize them. Oh, that was no big deal. No. We also don't deny them. We don't live like it never happened. We also don't spiritualize them as if to say something evil, something bad is somehow something good. No, we don't do any of those things. In fact, we protest them. We lament them. You can find all kinds of Psalms uh, in the Old Testament of lament where people are lamenting the evil that is around them or the evil that has happened to them. We acknowledge these things. We grieve these things. There are all kinds of healthy things that we can do with bad things that happen to us, but we don't need to worry about them worrying about them is going to do literally nothing. There's a researcher named Robert Emmons, and uh, he is today's 
expert on the subject of gratitude. He's done tons and tons and tons of research uh, on the subject of gratitude. He's at the University of California. It just so happens he's also a Christian. He's a follower of Jesus. And he's got a phrase. He talks about uh, the redemptive twist. That's his phrase, the redemptive twist. And he actually uses that phrase. You know, he does this, this uh, research. And in the end, he describes that his research has led him to believe in something called the redemptive twist. Uh, oddly enough, uh, his research shows that very often the seasons that are the most painful, the most difficult, the most challenging that people go through, those very episodes or periods in their life end up becoming the very thing that creates the greatest community for them, the deepest levels of connection for them, the greatest amount of spiritual growth or character growth and development for them. And even the greatest meaning, those episodes, those difficulties, getting through those trials become those periods of their life that have the greatest meaning for them. And he says very often people express it this way, and he does say after the fact. Isn't that interesting? It's after the fact. He says after the fact, they express that they are most thankful for these times in their life as they look back. And he calls that the redemptive twist, as well he should. Because, friends, this is always what God, what Jesus, what the Holy Spirit is up to in our lives through difficulty. You see, if we live cruciform lives, lives centered in Jesus, centered on the cross, gospel-centered lives, you got to understand this. I hope you, if you don't, don't go out of here with anything, at least go out with this. Our past is not finished yet, you see. I mean, even though our past is past, it's not finished yet. Let me explain, because simply this, what happens in the future can change the way we understand our past. Let me give you an example. Um, it was on Friday, I think, that Jesus hung on a cross, right? Uh, that, that Friday was almost certainly, for Jesus' closest disciples, the very worst day of their life up to that moment. They had so much hope for change. They had so many expectations for deliverance. I mean, they thought Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Look at what he does. He, he walks on water. He raises the dead. He causes the blind to see, the lame to walk. Listen to the way he teaches, how powerful, how true, how it resonates in our heart, how it convicts. I, I mean, Jesus is God's Son come to earth. The kingdom of God has come, they're thinking. And then Friday comes. And Jesus is nailed on a cross and, and dies. Nobody saw that coming. And then Saturday comes, the day after Friday, and you know what? It stinks too. It's no better. It's an awful, awful day. Life felt about as bad as it could get. They must have said, you know, I guess we were wrong. I guess Jesus wasn't who we thought he was. He's not the Messiah. I guess, I guess the change we hope for isn't coming. I guess we're wrong to hope and to believe that it would. But then Easter Sunday comes, you see. And what happened on Sunday, the future, transformed forever the way they understood Friday. Don't you see? And the point is, what happened in their future changed the way they understood their past. On Sunday, tragic Friday, God-awful Friday becomes Good Friday. 
On Sunday, human history got divided up into two parts, B.C. and A.D., you know, life before Jesus and life after Jesus' death and resurrection. Friends, we, we have promise after promise to assure us that what God is going to do in the future is going to change how we perceive both our present and our past. That's why we always have so much room for hope and anticipation, you see. Any hardship that we are processing in the now is quite frankly just a test of our joyful confidence in God. It's a test of whether we can seek first the kingdom in the midst of difficulty. And Jesus says, don't worry, seek first the kingdom. You remember back in December, we looked at the serenity prayer. We kind of used that as a, as a rubric to hang some thoughts on, some teaching on. The serenity prayer says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can, uh, to accept the things I cannot change and courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. Now, there's a longer version of the serenity prayer that adds this phrase, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Whoa. Really? Yeah, really. You see, if you follow Jesus, you had better get ready to learn to accept hardship as a pathway to peace. Well, how, how, how do you get peace? Well, you, you get God's peace given to you as you seek first the kingdom. And it is a peace that doesn't, it's hard to understand, right? It passes human understanding. Um, let hardship drive you to God and teach you to trust and rest in the only one who can help you. Let it take you to deeper places of faith, deeper places of trust, deeper places of dependence on Jesus. And you'll discover, I think, somewhere down the road that there's been a redemptive twist in your life. Let it remind you to live in the now, live in the present. Live one day at a time. You see, you always only, and me too, just need strength for today. We always only just need hope for today. We always only just need wisdom for today and provision for today. Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus taught us to pray. It's the manna principle, right? Israel wandering in the wilderness. They need food. They're going to starve to death out there in the wilderness. What does God give them? Well, he doesn't give them a, a stockpile that will get them through the next 40 years. He just gives them manna for today. That's it. And I would say that's seeking first the kingdom. Now, let's tell the other side of this story. Uh, much of our journey in life, especially when we are fighting anxiety or Fighting worry involves having a few people with whom to share it. When it comes to anxiety, when it comes to worry, this is really an important part of being the community Jesus wants us to be. You don't want to let people worry alone. You don't want to worry alone. We are wired to receive life from other people when we're anxious, when we're afraid, when we're experiencing worry. This is one of the reasons why we have small groups in this church. You're not supposed to do the following of Christ alone, you see. That's not a, a solo sport. 
No one is meant to face life alone. This is why we keep saying, don't neglect cultivating deep relationships where you can share whatever it is that's testing your joyful confidence in God. You, you need others who are following Jesus to come alongside, to listen, to pray, to sometimes tell you to stop it, right? We need each other. I can honestly say to you that the valleys, if you can call them that, the difficulties, the hardships that have come to me in my life have almost always proven to be the times that Holly and I are the closest. Now, sometimes she's the problem, and that's not true. <laughs> but when she's not the problem, you know, we, it's, these are some of the best times in our marriage. Uh, I can even say that about friends. Some of my deepest moments of friendship and connectedness to other people have come in the midst of a crisis in my life. Challenging times. But they become growth times. You see, those things happen in valleys more than they do on mountaintops. When the valleys come, when you're worried, don't worry alone. Jesus doesn't mean for you to worry alone. That's why he created a community that he calls the church. Jesus wants us to remember there is a father who feeds birds, sparrows. And there is a father who dresses flowers. You understand how, <laughs> how different that is than other gods, right? Other gods don't give a hoot. You're only here to meet their needs and please them according to ancient gods, but not our God. Our God cares about sparrows and cares about flowers and Jesus says, if he cares about them, think about how he cares for you. Well, yeah, how does he care for you? How does he care for me? Woo, well, here it is. This is the extent to which he will go to fix what's broken in us, to take care of our problem of sin. Here it is, right here on this table. Here's the sign. Here's the symbol. Here's the sacrament. Here's the meal that every time we gather around it is supposed to remind us just how much he cares. Thank you, God, for this meal. Because, Father, we tend to forget, we tend to worry, we tend to become anxious, we tend to think that the future is frightening, we tend to think that nothing can fix the past, nothing, nothing at all. All not true. There was a moment in time when Jesus was here on this earth and, and he chose to lay down his life and die on a cross for you and for me because he wanted to fix the sin problem in us. That sin needs to be forgiven so that we can have a spiritual uh, relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was up to. Uh, he was in the upper room the night before he was betrayed and he took the bread and he, he broke it and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember that I care. I care all the way to the cross, all the way to the grave, and all the way back from the grave. I care. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then he gave these things to his disciples. He told him to eat his body and drink his blood because he knew how badly we were going to need to be reminded 
don't need to worry. I've done everything that needs to be done for you. Trust me. Depend upon me. I'm going to pray and, and we'll set apart this, this bread and this juice for a special purpose. And, and then we'll pass out the bread. And when the bread comes your way, take a piece, hand it to the person next to you. It is important that you know that this, this is a family meal. By that, I mean this is for people who have faith in Jesus. If you don't know where you stand spiritually, if you don't know if you believe in him or not, if you don't know if he's, that's okay. We're, we're thrilled and delighted you would be here. But, but understand, it would be better for you not to partake of this meal. In fact, the apostle Paul said that we eat and drink judgment to ourselves uh, if we eat without discerning the body and the blood of Jesus, meaning we eat without understanding the significance of what is here, which is the crucifixion of Jesus, the healing powers and uh, of the spiritually healing powers of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So uh, we invite you to partake, but uh, if you're still kind of processing where you stand with all those things, just pass it to the person next to you. No big deal. Um, but if you can come to this in faith, this table, then please do partake of Jesus. The only one, the only one who can change the past and give it a perspective that it needs to have. The only one that can give you a certain hope for the future. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this meal. It's sacred because Jesus, you are the host. It's a meal that reminds us that you went as far as a human being can go in caring and loving. You laid down your life for us, that our lives might be spared. You shed your blood for us that our blood would not need to be shared. The cup, the, the cup of wrath, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus and not us. And for this, we are thankful. We are grateful. Fill us, nourish us, change us, transform us. Give us everything that we need to not worry. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.